listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. We are kind of in this in-between series where Mark and I are tag-teaming a little bit. Uh, This is the third week um, in this particular series. It doesn't necessarily have a title. But what it is is this intersection of things that I've recently been away for two months, away from the team, away from the church environment here. Um, And what God has been speaking to the team back here, he's been speaking to me about on the other side of the world um, because that's just who God is and how he works with his church. And so in consolidating and trading notes, we've realised that there's actually something corporate that God is doing, that there's words to be spoken that directly intersect with people's lives individually, and that is super important. And just as important is what he's wanting to do with us corporately as his church. And so we've been tag-teaming. The first week uh, was about humility. Hands up if you were around for that one. Hands up if you're humble now. (laughs) Um, But just how important this concept is. This is our God-given, pre-fallen nature where we are rightly submitted as creature to the creator, where he is God and we are not. But we get to participate with him as he gently and humbly (coughs) leads us. And that humility is actually the point to our discipleship. That transformation back into the original nature that we were created to be where God can have glory and then have us participate in his glory. Last week, Mark spoke about David and Saul. Hands up if you were around for that, a good chunk of you. Uh, If you missed any of these, please. Mark was here, go ahead. Please podcast. They kind of all intersect in some kind of tapestry. Uh, I don't expect any of you to remember this, um, but September last year, I spoke a message on David and Saul. Hands up if you remember that, a few of you. Now, Mark was away at the time, so he never heard it. Um, if, (laughs) If you are in a ministry context and God separately reveals the same word to people within the same community. There is something he is deeply (coughs) wanting to embed amongst us. He's not doing this for the fun of it. We only have 52 Sundays a year. There's so many topics we could cover. Could it be, and I'm gonna propose it is, that God's call for David's is real and sharp and live today? That just as God's eyes were looking for someone whose heart was truly his and he found David, he's looking again for people whose hearts are truly his. Not as the world sees it, but as God sees it, who sees everything. And David being in the hidden places, unknown, unseen, even by his own family, God saw a man after his own heart, anoints him 20 years before he becomes king. Let me just say that again. He is anointed as king 20 years before he becomes king. Can you imagine the faith and the dependence David must have had to walk that journey out? There's no Bible to get encouragement by. No Psalms to have been written yet. He, he was the one to write them. And so here we are in this time and place where God is looking for the humble. He's looking for the hungry. And he's looking for the holy and his eyes are searching throughout the earth to see who is going to be there. Red is a small part of a really big body, the worldwide, where God is breathing and awakening and mobilising his people to stand and to stand strong to advance massive Goliaths in our day and age. 
And so it's my privilege to continue on. And what I would love to do today is to look at a passage in John 12. I'm going to read it to you, but feel free, please, to uh, turn to your Bibles. Never let me prevent you from using a book. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I think this is a fair request. I would love to see Jesus. But can you imagine being there in the day and age when Jesus walked the earth and performed miracles and healed the blind and the lame and the sick and delivered people from their depression and oppression and um, raised people from the dead? Uh, Jesus would later say, You've seen me when I'm alive, but blessed are those who believe in me when they haven't even seen me, which is you guys. But these Greeks have heard the rumours of this Jesus and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus' instant reply to this request is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So far, I think uh, Jesus is on track. What has happened preceding John 12 is that Jesus has healed blind people. He has freed the oppressed. He has uh, turned the religious structure inside out and back to front. He has uh, thrown a cat amongst the pigeons, as the saying is, and the religious people are offended. In this time, prior to this, in the passage beforehand, Jesus is actually, you know when he's on a donkey? Uh, always mystifies me why he's on a donkey, but he's on a donkey to fulfill prophetic words from uh, the Old Testament. And he's on a donkey and the crowd yell out, hallelujah, hallelujah, here is the king, the Messiah. And they crown him as king. And so for Jesus to say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's spot on. So, so far, so good. Jesus is getting popular. The whole world wants in on him, including the Greeks, so it's now gone far and wide. And Jesus is like, yep, it's now the hour for me to be glorified. And then in true Jesus fashion, he says something else. But I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So cryptic. Always using these nature metaphors. He's popular. The crowds are beckoning. There's tension and, and attention on him to have him as the centre of everything that people are on about. And finally, this man who's gentle and humble, who actually tells them everything they've ever done and loves them and sees their deepest and darkest secrets and loves them and brings healing and brings transformation, says something bizarre. I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it remains just a single ground, a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. This passage is repeated by Paul in Corinthians 15. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And so Jesus is saying, it is now my hour to be glorified. Like the whole reason why I'm here, we're heading there. It's now the 11th hour. It's the last week of my life. We're going to have glory. And the world anticipates what that's going to be and has this interpretation and assumption of what that means. But Jesus is actually saying this is the complete opposite to what you think. And he's pointing towards the fact that instead of being crowned king, he's actually going to be put on a cross and he is going to die. And in fact, this is vital so that the story doesn't just stay here. And these people aren't the only ones that have their secrets seen and their burdens healed and peace and salvation come to their house. He does it so that it can happen to the whole world. But this is a mystery in real time. Why on earth would he do that? 
Jesus, being the creator of the universe, is using a metaphor of creation and nature. And he uses a metaphor of a grain of wheat, which I have in my pocket. It's very small. Here it is. <laughs> now, I'm no biologist. Any biologists in the room? People studied seeds? Uh, Dan Misson has a friend who loves seeds. Uh, Craig likes seeds. Uh, I'm no biologist, but can I just say, <laughs> Google seeds, like, these are intricate. These aren't just some, like, little grain here, but what, what are we talking, five mil by two. We have got a whole life in here. We have got structure. We have got layers. We have got an embryonic axis, a starchy endosperm an outer pericarp, I have no idea what I'm saying, by the way, cross cells, tube cells, tester, hyaline layer, an aleroone layer, a brush, <laughs> and a crease. And Jesus is saying, in this grain, there is a whole harvest. That it's not meant to stay just this, full of life already but it's actually meant to multiply and multiply and multiply. That that is what a seed exists for. The seed does not exist for the seed. The seed exists to become the tree that is already structured within this, but needs the right conditions and the right set of processes to have it realise its full potential. He's saying that what people think he is at this time, that's just a grain. But there is a much bigger story and a much bigger picture of what he's on about and he wants a harvest. He doesn't want just a grain of seed. And so unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, doesn't just fall, but dies, it will not bear fruit or produce a harvest. Finally, in true Jesus style, this is where you're going to be really glad you came to church. Those who love their life will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hands up if you've heard this passage before. Hands up if you understand what it means. My hope is, and if it hasn't happened yet, it will, that the Holy Spirit, as he's done his work in you, in revealing the Son, not just in, in the cognitive understanding from childhood and primary school, but as if you've lived out your days and you've walked one step in front of the other, that the essence of this saying has become more and more true. That this is not just a saying for, you know, um, mid-century um, pre-century, I've lost my history dates, um, Palestine or the Middle East, that this is actually the truth of the creator God and how he's created the world to be, how he has cycled life to be. And what Jesus is saying, if you, you have two lives, by the way, so there's no YOLO, like you don't only live once, so let's just delete that, <laughs> goodbye. You don't, by the way, just in case you're wondering. You've got two lives and you've got two choices. But the choices that you make in this life end up determining what happens over there. That what you choose to do with the seed now ends up determining what happens with the seed later on. That the point is the tree, the point is the harvest, the point is not the seed. And so this is what Jesus is hinting at. And it's beautiful and it's mystical and he's poetic. And sometimes it annoys me that it just doesn't give us black and white teaching, but maybe he does. Whoever loves his life will lose it pretty black and white. Whoever hates his life, and by that we don't mean hates a strong word, 
What we mean by that is loves and clings onto it more than who Jesus is and the life he has for you. We'll lose that. And then, what is it saying? We'll lose, and those who hate their life in this world, in other words, this is nothing compared to this, will keep it for eternal life. Sounds mysterious, but this determines our everyday reality more than we realise. And this story is more common to your journey than you probably realise. And so what I'd love to do is just unpack that for a second because it intersects with just some theories that are out there. Sociologists talk about this, psychologists talk about this, that there are stages to life that human beings go through. You may have heard some of these. I've since heard the rumours that Bridgetown are currently doing a, like a stages of life thing. I think they're taking 13 weeks. That would be very Bridgetown to really get into a topic. Um, I haven't heard any of these. So if what I'm about to tell you um, resonates with you, I encourage you to listen more and go deeper into some of the frameworks that might be on offer to help you understand what's going on in your world and in, in your life. But the framework, and this is not gospel, this is not black and white, this is just a framework, is that, don't worry about it, you have two <laughs> halves to your life. Anyone heard of this? It's the two-half theory. Okay, psychologists aren't putting up their hands, so now I'm nervous, but anyway. Cal Young, the Swiss psychiatrist, started coming up with it sort of in the early 1900s, and it kind of took, took weight. And it's made true of my life, but I also see it throughout the Bible. I see this with Joseph. I see this with Abraham. I see this with Moses. I see this with Jesus himself. I see this with Saul turned Paul. And it's definitely true of my own testimony. And so what I want to use is just this framework to help us understand how could this cryptic, mysterious, um, but compelling passage of Jesus actually ensure that we're in alignment for where we're at today, whatever age you are. So the first half of life is considered to be the necessary and important task of developing a sense of identity. Necessary and important. They say that this happens in your childhood years, predominantly into your adolescence and your early adulthood. And it is necessary that this happens. In other words, if this doesn't happen, if a sense of identity isn't established, then you get stuck in that space for the rest of your life. And so you end up being a 60-year-old, but 10-year-old in thinking and understanding. And so when you're developing a sense of identity, it's just as simple as, um, I like this, I don't like this. Um, I'm a Deutscher. Um, I don't know what your name is, but I'm a Deutscher. It doesn't mean anything, but that's what I am. Um, I like lettuce, but not iceberg lettuce. I... Uh, love the human body, don't know why, I think it's amazing. Seeds, not so much, human body, love it. And you end up building this sense of identity that means, oh, I'm good at music, or I'm good at maths, or I am this. And we start to land somewhere in a chaotic world that is full of uncertainty. It is vital we have an identity to stand on. When I was five, before I went to primary school, we had this thing that was given to us for Christmas, and it said the name Deutsche, which happens to be my my last name. And I remember being five and grabbing a pen, didn't know how to spell, you know, when all your words look like O's, because you just don't know how to spell. And I went, I'm going to, the first word I wrote was my name, and I copied it, you know, meticulously, that this is my name. And I remember writing it out and going, ah, and being struck that this was my name, this is my family name. And you see kids do this, they don't just tell you the name, they tell you their full name. I'm Sarah Beth Deutscher. 
And as you get older, you realise there's nothing in that name whatsoever. <laughs> there's no meaning in that name. But as Eugene Peterson says, the fact that you have a name is more important than what the name actually is. You have a name. So you have an identity. There are things that are obvious to you that happened as you were growing up as a, as a young kid that you wouldn't think twice about, but were actually God's sovereign hand over your life, giving you some kind of foundation to stand on. I'm good at art. I'm good at football. I love this. Quite often at this age, our identity is defined by what we're not. So for me, I was not... Uh, a good child. <laughs> My sister was the good child. Um, I was not the, f the child in the family that liked football. They all love football, not interested in football. And so this is subconscious. We don't know we're doing it, but it's really vital. I told a story last week about one of my nephews. I'm going to do it again. Um, I've probably got one left in me before you get sick of it. Um, Zach, four years old, blonde curly hair, big blue eyes, uh, big brown eyes, but in Cairns. Now, if that doesn't make any sense to you, there are a lot of Asian tourists in Cairns. So they come to Cairns and there's this little kid just coming out of toddler age with blonde <coughs> curly hair and big brown eyes and so they all want to take uh, selfies with him. And I'd heard the rumours of this and thought it was cute until I saw it happen and witnessed it myself. And I'm like, this is not good for his development. This is not okay. And seriously, like, I mean, one after the other. <laughs> like this. And, and he would just sit there and go like that. Then one afternoon, he starts walking around the house and he goes, I'm cute. <laughs> I'm so cute. And I'm like, right. Now, whether or not he's lucky to have me as an auntie, I'm not sure, but... I said to him, Zaki, there's something more important than cute. He's like, what could be more important than cute? I said, it's character. <laughs> now, I've since understood about development and ego development, and it's really important. But before I understood that, I didn't want him to think he was cute because I don't want a narcissist in the family. I wanted someone <laughs> who understood cooperation and generosity and kindness and all the things that uh, make a, a human, a good human citizen in the world. Anyway, so he starts saying, you know, what's more important than cute, Zaki? And he goes, character. And, but he doesn't know what it is. And so he keeps asking me, is that character? Is that character? Is that character? Just desperate to understand that if there's something more important than cute, then he wants it. Till I realised he thought character was cute. So he's pointing to all the cute kids, wanting to know if that was character. My sister's then doing the grocery shop list. And she's like, Zach, is there anything else we need? Milk, cheese, blah, blah, anything else we need? He goes, character. <laughs> and I'm like, he knows it's costly. This is good. <laughs> But I realise if he doesn't know what character is, he probably doesn't know what cute is either, but he just knows he is. It is so vital to our development that we know that we are, whatever that is. And for those of us that don't end up growing with a healthy framework behind us of love, acceptance, <coughs> security, a sense of power and control in the healthy sense of the word, a sense of differentiation and things that mean that you're different but you are accepted and loved, we get stunted. And as we grow older, we end up walking with a limp. And this is becoming more and more a common story. And so the first thing I want to say is your first half of life is vital. The things that have happened to you, the things that have built your sense of identity are so important and they are God's gift to you. They are necessary. 
If we don't have those things, if we end up having trauma, and I've, psychologists would know this, but I've met a couple of people who've had trauma when they were 12 and at the age of 45 they still act as if they're 12 because their mind is stuck there. They haven't been able to separate and build resilience and understanding and comprehension. So this is a vital, vital concept. And my encouragement to you is don't just let this sermon wash over you, but have a bit of a think. What are the things that you haven't even thought of that are so normal to you, but they've actually been embedded by the grace of the Father to give you a sense of self? Beautiful gifts from the Father for the first half of life. The problem happens when we think the point is that identity. We get into trouble when we think that the point is this first half or the identity or the construct we've established when actually it's just the container. It's just the packaging for something much bigger and something much better. It's the container for something better to fill it. And if we don't know that, then what ends up happening is that we think our first half or our identity is the tree and not realise it's just the seed. We become so identified with the container, we spend the rest of our life defending it and proving it's the best. This is who I am. This is where I'm safe. This is how I control my future. Thomas Merton calls it your private salvation project. And this is just as live in Christian circles as any other circles. It just has more disguise because it has a Christian veneer over it. But when Jesus is saying, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, he is speaking to a Jewish audience that had drastically missed the point about who he is. The first half of the Jewish story, the first half was about Moses' law and covenant, that I will be your God and you will be my people, and it's true. And this is a truth that was to shape their life and identity as a nation, that was to make them stand out apart from all the other nations of the world. It was true, but the truth of the first half wasn't actually going to be the truth of the second half. And Jesus is there as that bridge to show them that he's evolving what he wants to do with his people, and they miss the point because it doesn't fit. They're hanging onto the container for true life because that's where their belonging and their identity has been shaped. That's where their sense of purpose <coughs> and what life is all about. So don't mess with the container. So much so they kill him because he's such a threat to the container. And you see this all the way through John leading up to this passage. John is considered the gospel that is the most Jewish and anti-Jewish of all the gospels because of this ongoing conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders where they get it but they don't get it all at the same time. Why? They're stuck in the first half of life. We live in a first half of life culture. We live in a culture where we will fight tooth and nail for whatever construct we have found our personal place of belonging. It's very rarely about the social justice issue as much as it is our own need to be heard. It's very rarely about our need to make a difference in that area of work as it is about a love of self. It's very rarely actually about what is the objective truth of that thing as it is about us desperate to make sure that our foundation is okay and that we're okay and we can stand. And so what Jesus does in his grace, as he did when he walked the earth, is he upsets the apple cart. In his grace, he either has 
or he will allow your private salvation project to fall apart, even though it's good. It's just that he's got more for you. That if there's a first half, there's a second half. And we just don't have it within us to move to the second half without some kind of tectonic plate shift. My first half was I grew up in a Christian home I've always known Jesus and have always had a personal relationship with him. I am grateful <clears throat> that in my teenage years, I wasn't <clears throat> one of those people who fell away and came back. Uh, I'm grateful for the heritage that I have. I have always loved Jesus, and I know that's not always the story, but this is my testimony. And as I say this, there is no hierarchy in testimony. I'm just best at telling my story as opposed to yours. Thanks, Eva. <clears throat> And as I grew up, um, I was passionate about serving Jesus uh, in the church, even as a kid. I hated church, but I loved church all at the same time. I got so bored, I'd count the wooden palings on the roof and how many times the van went around. But there was something about this Jesus that completely gripped me. I wanted to go to Bible college from the time I was 13. That was just where I wanted to go. And as uh, I hate year 12... Um, my mum came into my room and she sat down and she said, um, Sarah, there's a Christian parents, uh, we know that you're probably going to want to go to Bible college straight after high school, but as your parents, we don't support that decision. We want you to get work out in the world before you head that way. Uh, according to the world's inclination, she's 100% right. Um, but I knew in the depths of my bones that I was called to something else. And so she left my room and I went, we well, you know how Jesus says, unless you reject your mother and your brother and your father. And your <laughs> like, that, I don't just say that trily. Like, I was genuinely like, wow, I've got a big issue here. I either trust what I believe God's leading me to or I obey my parents. Uh, long story short that I don't have time for, I ended up in uh, another course, PR, at RMIT and uh, hated it. But it was the Lord's leading. I love it how he does that. I love it how he doesn't lead us the Christian way. So he didn't lead me the Christian way. And I went around in the wilderness, around in these circles as he did a work in me. And then I worked in marketing for a little bit. And um, eventually, um, the Lord said, OK, now I can go Bible college. Thank you. <coughs> for seven years, I had been waiting and praying, Jesus, I know there's this thing in me. I'm desperate to awaken people to your truth. I'm desperate to equip the saints. I'm desperate to strike at the heart of what it is you're doing and help people understand that so your church can be mobilised. And this went on for seven years. Into studying at uh, Bible college, I ended up working at Bible college and um, there was a guy there called Mark. Um, I was employed to do marketing. He was employed two days a week to think. <laughs> pretty on par. It's pretty good. And throughout the course of that, um, that year, what uh, God had been leading Mark into was similar to what had been stirring in me. It was just like everything came together. Let's leave our nets. Let's drop this and follow what it is God is asking of us. And so we, we started this thing, which was called Uber at the time, funnily enough, should have trademarked, and um, <laughs> that looked into worldview and faith and culture and what is happening um, to us, what is happening to the church, what is happening to people's sense of identity, but also sense of faith. Uh, and I was like, finally, after all these years, here we are takes us a year to set it up, get traction, start getting um, demand for um, things and people are wanting to hear and we've got Mark's mind at the helm and so everyone's wanting to get a piece of this uh, and I fall really ill, just out of the blue. 
what I thought was a flu, ends up being a post-virus fatigue. On top of that, I end up with glandular fever. And when you're sick, you just know that you'll be sick for a couple of weeks and then you'll be okay. But then you're not okay. And so how long is a piece of string? How long is this going to go on for? Long, long story short, I ended up being sick for seven years, um, but nine months bedridden. Um, with just a terrible illness where I had all sorts of things going wrong and I'll share the proper detail over wine one day. But the point is, after seven years, with my trajectory of my identity, of my first half of life, of the things that God had been building and shaping and um, preparing me to do, all of a sudden, the tablecloth just pulled out from under me. This isn't okay. To make things worse, in a quiet time, he talked to me about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, which I've never understood, by the way. How can you sacrifice the very promises of God spoken over your life? Like, how, how do you do that? It was my quiet time. I then went to East, which is what we were called at the time, and Mark spoke on Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And I'm like, well, this is not helpful. And then that night, I get a text message from a friend overseas, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. I'm like, what the heck is happening? I'll tell you what was happening. God was unrattling my private salvation project because he's full of love and grace and he's got something bigger in mind. And so I had to give that up. And that is easy to say this side of the story. But when you're the other side of the story and it's dark, you don't know where you're heading or where this act of faith or trust is going. This is scary. When you're letting go of the container that you've dressed yourself in, that is confusing. But there was this still, small assurance, clear, unless a grain of wheat drops to the ground and dies, it will not produce any fruit. As time um, went on, that got harder and harder. But my point in this is that there comes a point in everyone's life where he comes up to you and he says, leave your nets, drop your container, follow me. And unlike the first half of life where it's linear and it's clear and you go to kinder, then primary school, then high school, then so on and so forth, unlike you then get married and you have kids and there's just this natural trajectory, the second half of life is non-linear, non-black and white, there is no clarity, there is no model, it is mysterious and it is messy but it is beautiful. And so Jesus comes to you and he tells you to drop your nets Come follow me. But the issue is we are not about leaving. We don't live in a culture that likes to leave things. We're about protecting things. And so we are in a first half of life culture. If we're not careful, the church is possibly in some ways our first half culture. I don't know how many times we can accept Jesus. Like, there's got to be a point to which something happens because of that. And there's parts of us which want this and we agree to this and all of us want transformation. But none of us want to change. So when Jesus comes to you in transition from first half of life to second half of life, he says, drop your nets, come follow me. He's actually offering you a hand and an act of his grace because he's wanting to do something beautiful. What happens when you're in transition from a first half to a second half 
is that you are in a state of confusion. You are in a state of stuckness. You are in a state of wrestle with God. You are in this place where you, like Terry Walling would say, you, you don't want to go back to where you were, but you don't know where you're going, and so you're just in this limbo. It can be confusing, it can be disappointing, it can be um, boring, you can feel stuck with boredom. You have this sense that you've been pursuing this life your whole life, only to realise that you've been climbing this ladder and it's against the wrong wall. Nothing more disappointing than realising mean you've been climbing the wrong ladder. But if this is you, my word of encouragement and hope to you tonight is that this is good. This is grace. This means Yahweh is on the move. This means he's got an understanding of what he's got for you and your place within his broad body, the church, that he knows about that you don't yet. But he's saying, leave your nets. Come, follow me. It's time to take off the security blankets, the places of comfort and identity and belonging, which were good, so don't despise them. But I've got something more and I've got something better. It's like when you have a half-time talk in football or soccer. It's time to have a half-time talk. This worked the first half, but didn't work at the same time. You can't take that into the second half. In fact, you need to do this in the second half. Let's change it around. Let's mix this. Let's shake it up. And when we get to this space, we realise that we start to experience God's resurrection in real time. Not just when we get to heaven, but now as we live and breathe. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, and Paul is talking about the resurrection. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Heard that before. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a, a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, but it is to be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is to be raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The second Adam became a life-giving spirit. And if I was to just quickly summarise, as we draw this to a close, the theology of Paul, if you were to read throughout the, the apostles, a guy who more than anyone went from first half to second half. And the first half wasn't wasted, but it was completely transformed by the second half. So much so, he starts off as Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin. You couldn't get a better Jew than him to become Paul, who says all of that was worthless compared to this. That was nothing. That the message says, that what I knew before was utter garbage. It was rubbish compared to now what I know and live and breathe. And he says what is sown in brokenness in the first half, in the second half is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, because it's human natural um, progression that anyone goes through, is raised in strength. What is raised as natural is now marked by spiritual power. That the very Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is actually at work in your life right now. Not wanting to do what can be naturally brought about, by human will or volition, but only by what the Spirit of God can do as he breathes resurrection on you and works out in his way the master's plan for your life and your contribution in this world. That we have Adam, the first man, that just couldn't cut it, didn't get there. And now we have Christ, the perfect man, from the natural to the spiritual, from death to life, from earth to heaven, and this is not a promise for when you die. This is a promise for right now, whatever you're going through whatever is happening. 
that Jesus is there beckoning to do some resurrection work in your life. And so the first half is vital. The first half is crucial. The first half is outward. The first half is building an identity. The first half is linear. The first half is semi-controllable. The first half makes sense and matches what the world would want, but the second half is the complete opposite. It's non-linear. It is not an outward work, it's an inward work, like David to the hidden places. It is not black and white, it's full of mystery and paradox. Where the first half is you get your identity by comparing yourself to others, in the second half it's about getting your identity within. Where the first half ends up being marked by a false self if we choose the container to be our identity. The second half is actually filled with the life-giving spirit where you are actually now mobilised and empowered and that presence within is the living Christ now where people now get to see Jesus now. Like the Greek man asked, I want to see Jesus because you actually have that living water within you. When nine months into not being very well and I had not just practically given up what I felt God had asked me to to do and what I felt all of my first half was leading up to, Um, nine months in, God was very cruel (laughs) and he brought the passion back. This is not okay. Don't take this off me, but keep the passion. That's not fair. Take the passion as well, like take it off. And his answer to my prayer wasn't to take away the passion and the fire in my bones, but to actually increase it. So this ended up in another prayer. This is not fair. What are you doing? And then it increased even more. I'm like, right, clearly you're doing something opposite to the direction I expected. At the time, Red was a a network and for different reasons it was sort of dissolving and Mark was taking on on the leadership of that and I started to feel this fire in my bones for the church again. (sighs) But I'm sick and I've got no energy. And you already took this away, so why are we back here? Got so strong, I just said to God, I said, God, if this is you, and in your mystery, you're wanting to give this back, I need you to pay for it. Because I'm sick of living for no money. (laughs) And I'm really tired with this sickness. I've got no energy. So it was a bit of a fleece. The next day, my uncle, having no idea about any of this, rings me up, goes, Sarah, I'm really worried about the world and where it's heading and what's happening to the generation. I'm 60, I run a business, Deutsche Mowers. What could I do? But I feel like God's got something on you and I think you're meant to do something about it. And so I want to tie the profit of my business to release you to actually do something about this. Mm-hmm. Same thing as before, but different. I had to leave home only to come home again, but different. I always knew it was God the whole time. It took flipping seven years. I always knew it was him who made that happen. But now I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew he was doing this. And the reason why I tell you this story now, partly because it intersects beautifully with my message, is I got back from my sabbatical and I wrote into my journal, I can't explain it, but I feel like I've got chronic fatigue again. Not physically, spiritually, 
that that same atmosphere of not just continuing on status quo, same as, as we were, let's keep going, we know what works, keep happening, but the same unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it does nothing. And so when my uncle subsidised the early days of red, this is the fruit of where we are from his act of obedience. I would have had no idea when he asked me to give it up that we'd be here today. That the transformation that's happened in you guys and other people in the morning service out of, out of east, no idea. But I'm back here again. Sarah, drop the grain of wheat. It means uncertainty. It means no control. It means mystery. It means paradox. But because I've been here before, I can trust it. And because I've been here before, I can say you can trust it, where it's happening to you individually. So there is this work where God is asking people as individuals to let go of things, even if they're, they're good, because he's got something else. He's asking you to step away from the safety blanket. He's challenging your structures of belonging and meaning and transcendence and identity. And he's saying he's got something better. But will you leave your nets? Come follow me. So for those of you, this is my practical, as I get my little bit of wheat, my wheat grain. Who would know this is packed with so much life? But it has to die first. But there are things you're struggling with. There are things you're uncertain of. There are things you're holding on to. There are things that may not be circumstantial, but it's the emotional river deep within. That, this is my challenge for let it go and see what God does anyway. And then the fair question after this would be, but how do I let it go? It's a very fair question. I'm going to show you. Are you ready? Are you watching? This is how you let things go. <laughs> I'm half tongue-in-cheek, but I'm actually half not there. I know it's there. I can look at it, but I'm not attached to it. can go about the service and then come back in an hour and see if anything's happening. <laughs> Probably isn't because this is a hard heart. <laughs> but I'm not attached to it. There's a gardener and a creator who knows what that thing was created for. That he's the one that breathes life. He's the one that brings the rain and the sunshine. He's the one who cultivates hearts. He's the one doing it. He's God. I am not, and I get to live in the freedom of an easy yoke, where his burden is easy and his yoke is light and he does the heavy lifting. He pours his resurrection power into that and he does that. We are at the end of the first half of Red's life. I think we've been using the word new chapter. I would like to, if it's okay, say new book. The first half was all preparation. It's now go time. The things we have learned as a team, the things that God has been building, the things that he's cultivated within people, the things that he's shown us, that was all the preparation work so that we could now go into the second half. That is going to be uneasy, but we're all in it together. We don't like to leave. We like to protect. We don't like to change, but we want to be transformed. But may the promise of who he is, 
the faithfulness that he's proved in your life before, the faithfulness that he's had overread. Enable us. I'll invite the prayer team to come up. Sorry, the band, the worship team. The prayer team can come up too if they want. That he's just sifting things at the moment and he's just throwing it up into the air and it's up to him where it all lands. But as we come together to worship, what we now get to do is go, yeah, Jesus, we're after your discernment. Jesus, we're after your words of life to speak into our hearts and our situation. Jesus, we want you to separate the wheat from the chaff, the real from the unreal, the essential from the non-essential. We want to separate the God from the idol and the immaturity to the maturity. And as we get to praise, that is us collectively saying, yes, Jesus, have your way. May we not get it, but not get it. May we get it and may we embrace it. So I invite you to stand and sing and allow him to do his work in you as we do so.